Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. And I'm here with my first guest of the year, Peter Bickle, who's an architect and principal with Ashton Raggett McDougall Architects, often referred to as ARM, an award-winning practice based in Melbourne. They recently uh, won the most prestigious architectural award for um, the Geelong Library, the gold medal. So well done, Peter and ARM, and welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Peter, before we talk about the Geelong project, ARM as architects have a very distinct signature. Um, Shrine is one of their quieter projects, but it's fairly out there and very graphic. I mean, RMIT has a number of buildings by ARM. How would you describe the one on the corner of Swanston and Latrobe? It's yeah. a hard one to describe. Well, there's two there. There's, yeah, there's, there are two. Um, so I guess um, the way we approach buildings is to have an idea that might um, resonate with what's going on. And so the building on the corner, which is euphemistically called the Green Brain, I guess is sort of like this is a, an intellectual institution and we kind of see that as being you know part of what we do. Um, having a scholarly approach to architecture is something that the office actually prides itself on. So I guess, in a way, they, those kinds of ideas generate what we do. Um, and the same with the when we did uh, Melbourne Central, this idea that um, a shopping centre could be an urban object as well, um, not just a shopping centre was something. That, so the big boxes on the corner are kind of playful way of um, saying this can be architecture and shopping can meld together into a sort of public place. Um, Peter, it must be quite challenging, uh, not for the people who know architecture inwards and outwards, who know it thoroughly and get the idea, but you must get a lot of flack from people who don't know a lot about architecture who look at something like the green brain and go, well, I just think it's stupid. You know, you know. I mean, that happens must happen because it is a very expressive architecture. It's something that has to be explained. I mean, the Story Hall, which you uh, a wonderful, wonderful, really extraordinary uh, piece of interior architecture, has got humour. There's a whole story behind it, but it's it has to be explained sometimes. Mm, I think what we feel is that people will be stimulated if something has a story or. Um, kind of background to it that's not immediately obvious that um, obviously lots of people look at it and it's not familiar to them so that may be yeah. how they uh, react is oh, I don't I haven't seen a building like that before I'm not sure they may not like it lots of people actually then are intrigued um, rather than um, so turned off right. turned off they, they want to find out more about it um, and I find lots of um, my friends who yeah. see the buildings who aren't architects, um, are intrigued to talk about the stories and that actually makes it um, a more public kind of uh, persona for the building than just um, that you're just architects. Because we like the ideas to also be popular, that they deal with what people deal with, sort of yeah. things like packaging or you know, art or music or whatever it is that, that, that uh, I mean, influence people's lives. Peter, Story Hall's an interesting one. The yeah. facade is quite... Um, cave-like, yes. and there's this striations of purple through it. Yeah. Uh, very much. What was the story behind that? Look, it's not a building that I was. I was that was done when I was in the office, but 
there's clearly we have an interest in the kind of idea of the cave or this kind of um, place that you can retreat into. Um, the purple and the green, I think, is to do with um, some of the original feminist uh, movement that occupied the building. And so there are references to the building's history, as well as there was an interest, uh, I think, at the time in um, the Penrose tile, which is a um, geometric patterning system that was quite popular, again, probably in that period of time. Fed Square's also um, interested in that idea. So, yeah, that, there's a whole range of different things inside that building that... Um, once it's explained to you, it just gives it a, a, a history or a, or a kind of um, narrative that you can actually then a, a admire. One thing that I'd probably say um, you could thread through a number of ARM buildings is really they don't date. I don't think they date because this um, the ideas are so strong yep. and the way they're articulated you know, has, has got so much guts that if you walk into Story Hall today... I really don't think you could date it. No, I don't think we're... F we're not afraid that buildings will date. No, that's... Probably probably the reason why we'd, we don't take much interest in that idea, I must say. We just think what you want to do is a series of ideas that are relevant at the time you do them um, will always be relevant because they're important to, or interesting. And they relate to the history of the building. That's right, yes. So well done on the Geelong Library and Heritage Centre for the gold medal. That is... What an achievement. It was very exciting. Yes. Um, when you enter these awards, do you kind of expect anything of this uh, magnitude or you just do your work <laughs> and then just hope for the best? No, we have a history of winning awards, yes, so do. we do have a kind of expectation that we will, we will get one. Um, we Obviously, uh, our buildings can be slightly confronting for other people and so we don't always expect it, but we, also, we think that we should... Um, I guess, enter the realm of the public debate about architecture and the awards is one way to do that. Um, we don't see ourselves as uh, hiding away. We like to be out there to be seen and also discussing architecture in a kind of public realm. Tell me some of the ideas that started the process for Geelong Library. Um, well, we were, we were asked by the council to come up with three concepts for the building. So we started that and... Um, there were a range of uh, elements that we had to deal with. One was the Heritage Park next door. There was an urban context of historic buildings around. There's also across the road, there was quite a um, significant public office building. And then I guess the, the idea that started to evolve was the, the dome or uh, the sphere, which is kind of um, in the history of, let's call it, Western architecture, often associated with the library. So you've State got the library. State Library here and the um, uh, Library in London. Um, there's a range of other buildings that have vaulted or um, uh, domed elements. And it also the dome is often a um, recognised as a public um, symbol, I guess, and that's what we wanted. But we wanted to make it more uh, contemporary, I guess, and maybe refer to some other things as well. So um, the kind of geodesic, which was a maybe from a period when there was optimism about technology. We kind of looked at that idea. There's also, we cut it open, so it's a bit like a crystal that's been opened and that there's a cave in there. Um, the, at uh, Werribee Park, there's a little grotto. I don't know if you've ever been in there, but it's the idea that you go in and it's a place of contemplation. So that, there's a range of ideas that we kind of looked at um, 
and also the idea that this is a a public um, institution for learning, if I can put it that way, so that it was significant building that people felt that they could go there to uh, participate in a kind of relaxed manner but also learn about Geelong because we have the um, Geelong Heritage Centre which is part of the building. Libraries have changed enormously yes. in the last five to ten years. I mean, probably even, you know... I mean, they've dramatically changed. Yes. I mean, they're now regarded as community hubs rather than just places to sit and read a, a book. You wouldn't, you know, now there's a screen. What are the things you've noticed with the main changes? Look, I think the public library went, was under attack probably around the time we, were, we started this project in terms of local councils seeing that as a, a, um, an expense that they didn't need to have. Um, and I think a group of librarians, uh, including Paddy Manolis, who's the chief librarian here, tried to change the way people um, perceived public libraries as a place where you could go to relax, not just to sit quietly and read a book, but also to have a cup of coffee, to meet people, to engage in your community, I guess is what is how I see the change. And this is specific to public libraries, which is now, I think, um, moved over into the academic world as well, into other libraries, um, where the kind of informalities are more important than the formal um, components of it and people feel comfortable to go there. So that was a clearly one of the brief for this building. Because, I mean, now it's not just catering for a generic group of people who want to go to a library. I mean, you have to cater for 13-year-old. Yes. You have to attract and engage with 13-year-old kids who might be find libraries previously stuffy. They might have yeah. even gone into libraries very often. So we were asked to make it kind of exhilarating as well, but also as if if you had nothing else to do with your day, you could go there and feel comfortable just hanging about. Um, I was down there recently, and I, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon, and I said, oh, it's a bit quiet. She said, well, we're just waiting for the children rush. I said, they'll be all here after school in a minute, about five o'clock every afternoon. They all come in and they use the library. So Which is great. It has been a really amazing thing. And one of the aspects that, the probably important aspects of the 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 interior design of the building was to basically try and get the bookshelves off the floors in, in as much as possible to open the spaces up to be more relaxed and informal. So if you go into a lot of public libraries probably prior to this period, you would just see rows and rows of bookshelves, which is not very inviting in terms. So we, we came up with techniques to eliminate that situation, like the book wall and things like that. Okay. Um... It's, look, it really is a standalone piece, How do, and it must actually increase traffic going down to Geelong as well, because it's a bit like the Guggenheim in Bilbao, yeah. that people are fascinated by architecture and new forms. Look, I'm not... I don't think there's any um, significant evidence that it's the architecture that's making people go there. I think that it enhances their desire, but they have increased their um, patronage enormously. Obviously, it's a much larger library than they had before. But they're getting around 7,000 visitors a week. Pretty which, amazing. Yeah, it is. So they're very happy. And I think there's two aspects to that. One is that the building is inviting. It asks you to come in. It's a pleasure to be in. And it kind of caters for the needs of people who are going there. So it's got all these kind of aspects like the children's area, the um, heritage library, the, the cafe, those things that make it kind of inviting to go there.
Um, Peter, what's the thing that always stumps you when you're doing a library? Is it, is it store, archival storage? Is it, you know, you know, you know, the, the 13 year olds are going to be pretty robust, hardy on furniture and. Look, I guess another, I mean, not really stumped by doing libraries. We're kind of always looking to see how we can make the buildings more interesting and more um, accessible to people. Because we're, um, we have a sort of scholarly aspect to our own work, we see them as important buildings, and so we try and design them so that they invite people in. The fact um, in this building there's a lot of very um, beautifully designed furniture, or and you might call high-end designed furniture, so we're not afraid also to put in valuable things into the building so people feel like they have an ownership of and a really nice space. Them. They respect them. So we try really hard. And in this case, um, we had a fairly um, tight budget, I must say. It wasn't the most lavish building in the world. But we tried to use a lot of simple detail, a lot of simple ideas in a kind of elaborate way to make it feel really comfortable. How do you make something sparkle with a very limited budget? I mean, is it uh, the materials or the, more, as you said, the way you use materials? We have a kind of attitude that there are aspects of the building that you you should really spend a lot of time focusing on and there are other aspects of the building that maybe don't need so much attention in terms of, um, let's say, being explicitly architectural all the time, that they can be quite um, subdued, but they have to work. So we we kind of target the areas where we think um, the, import, the, the important components of it that'll make it a really great building. Yeah. Peter, um you were telling me that ARM are also one of three architectural practices working on the Opera House refurbishment oh. in oh. Sydney, which must be pretty exciting, but also daunting given the well the significance of you know the Opera House, not just in Australia but also worldwide. I mean, do you, when you're an architect and you're working on something as precious in people's minds, do you get anxious about it? Um, obviously, working on the Opera House is a daunting prospect. Um, it was a bit of a surprise that we got the job, I guess, um, being a Melbourne firm. Um, but uh, we have, I think, um, had experience in working on projects similar to that, so like the Shrine and um, Hamer Hall, where very sensitive buildings, and, and also in Geelong, where there's a sensitivity to the heritage that we're probably good at um, managing that process. Um, it is daunting working on such an important building. You go there every day. I mean, it's the busiest building I think I've ever been in. Um, there's just people doing things all the time. And it just has so much kind of international and local respect. So, yeah, no, it's um, we're not afraid of it. Um, it's not... Uh, let's go, we're not, probably not as exuberant as we'd normally be on this project. Because of, what, are, what are the main areas you're looking at? Well, we're trying to um, improve the acoustics of the concert hall, the interior, so we're actually having to add some elements to the building that will change some visual components of the interior, but not dramatically, but also a large technical overlay that allows them to... Um, put on a much wider range of performances in the in the room, and also be able to change from um, acoustic music to amplified music easily. Turn around so it doesn't take long because they they may have four, three, four concerts a day in the hall, and also the other components we're trying to 
get wheelchair access into the hall, make it a lot easier. So there's reasonable intervention in the foyers there that we have to make. But at the moment, it seems to be going reasonably well. I've been a really good client, and um, we seem to be, I guess, satisfying what the things that they want to do in a reasonably good way, so they've been happy. Peter, in terms of um, opera houses, you were mentioning before we yeah. sat down that you, you, know, you and your team at ARM travelled recently yep. to Europe uh, to see opera houses around the world. Yes. Um, how do you, when you see an opera house, how do you know when something really works, apart from the acoustic quality and something you feel is struggling a bit? Uh, so so in this case, uh, we've done concert halls. I haven't done an opera house yet. I'd like to do, we'd like to do that. I'd like, certainly like to be on. But um, I guess when you, you go in, obviously the acoustic component's incredibly important to how the building operates. So that's kind of, um, let's call it, that's a sort of, pragmatic thing that you have to get right and that varies from one building to another but then really whether there's a kind of sense of um let's call it um joie de vivre in the room if there's a kind of uh, sense that you're out you're in a, an, an important building and you're on an occasion yes i think that's they're the buildings that really attract you so you know some of the ones that i saw which were built maybe in the 80s they, they were a bit dull but there are others that are more exuberant and then they feel more comfortable to be in. They also make you feel as if you're enjoying your night out, uh, which is a good thing to do because not everybody understands acoustics exactly. So you want to have a kind of visual stimulation as well when you go into these these uh, buildings because that's the history of them as well, a lot of decoration, a lot of exuberance in them. Um, so I think it's important that they have those kind of elements and components. They're fantastic foyers where people meet and have a drink. You know, it's a night out. It's it's an important cultural event. You, they need to be important cultural buildings. Well, if you get, uh, if you go to not um, um, the Opera Garnier in Paris, yes. you know they have the huge staircase leading up to the yep. performance space, and you really feel there's that sense of arrival. Yes. Uh, and in a sense, you do that with most of your buildings. Yes, I think it's really the. The arrival point in a public building, I think, is an incredibly important part. And how it relates to the street and how it fits into the city, I think, they are also really important things. So, say, at the recital hall in the MTC, the idea that these are two buildings in a street, that they have some sort of uh, independent identity that you can recognise and that they're attractive to and that they have this nighttime and daytime aspects to them. And, you see, and you see people walking up and down the staircase yes, from the street. That's so right. there's that sense of transparency as well. So, so in the recital hall it was the idea of the sort of promenade that you're in your refinery, you can be seen, you can see the city. And then with the theatre it's kind of the idea of the illusion at night with the white frame on the outside that lights up that's like going to the theatre where you go into a darkened room and there's an illusion about what's going on. One of the most magical um, interiors I've seen, I mean, I've seen a number by ARM, is the Percy Granger Performing Centre at the Recital Centre. Quite exquisite. I think if people haven't been there, they should make it... <laughs> um, spend a little bit of time and going in. Unfortunately, it is behind a closed door, so unless you actually know it's there, you probably wouldn't visit it. That's right. It's not probably the better known of the two spaces because it's smaller. Quite intimate. Yeah, it's very intimate. Um, I think uh, the Granger idea of Granger's music, which is visual, um, it's a um, visual score, you know. Um, 
rather than traditional notes and stuff, he drew these lines. So we're, we're able to integrate that into the room. But also to make the room, um, I, I guess one of the things I like about those two rooms is the salon, which is a relatively small, intimate room, has a kind of sort of grand feel to it. And then uh, the um, Dame Elizabeth Hall is quite a grand hall, which then the scale comes down and you feel like you're in a more intimate space. So they kind of work in slightly different ways. And, and they're just the, they're using the um, acoustic wall elements to make a pattern in the room is also really important, I think, to give it that sort of sense of decoration that we were interested um, in. Peter, in terms of the... Uh, you've also, ARM, have done a number of multi-res developments, yes. apartments, few houses, not a lot of houses. Yeah. Uh, is it something that is just too fiddly, domestic work on, on a house scale? Um, or you're not getting the right clients or...? I think there's a there's a scale at which offices operate, and when you're smaller, the let's say there's individual residences are easier to do. Um, it's hard to uh, sometimes um, commit staff to doing relatively intense small jobs when there's a lot of larger jobs. Um, we also, I, I guess, one of the things I'm interested in in the office has is the public realm. And we see architecture having more than just being part of the domestic world, but being in the public world. So we like to be we're attracted to that kind of idea. So when we were when when Geelong came up, we were really really keen to get that job because it's an important public building in an important city. Um, uh, and so we've done more and more residential work, but probably on a sort of slightly larger scale in the last few years. Um, but at the same time, trying to make the the residential buildings have a public. Um, face to them and rather than generic yeah and the William Barack face on the building in Swanson Street is clearly that attempt to bring the ideas that we would have in a public building into the residential building to make it a public event as well um, Peter ARM, ARM at present haven't done a lot of overseas work no the, I and, don't think we've done one yet oh right okay yeah. is it something I mean a lot of architects were heading off to China few years ago and really keen to get involved in that whole area why is it that you feel that is it just because there's enough work in Australia or is it just something that ARM's very strong signature lends itself to more of the local environment um, I think one of the um, uh, underlying kind of uh, principles of the office is that we're kind of a we see the local situation or where you are um, influences the way architecture can actually operate, whether that's kind of in the international realm or not. But we're quite happy to be Melbourne-based firm, uh, generally, and we've been able to uh, get enough work here to um, maintain the office. But we've, the last few years, we've worked more and more in the other cities of Australia. So we've got a small office in Perth. We've done a number of buildings in Western Australia. Sydney. Um, um, Sydney, we've only just started the Opera House is our first job in Sydney so that's a bit of a surprise so we're looking at that um, Adelaide we've done some work Canberra obviously with the National Museum Albury which is um, Albury Wodonga the library um, and we've done a f couple of projects on the Gold Coast and in Brisbane so S Sydney's a difficult market I've spoken to a few uh, large architectural practices and it is quite a different 
aesthetic. I think there's a different ideological culture. I think it is. <laughs> I don't want to be a Melbourne-Sydney thing, but there is right. a slight difference. I think we might be a little bit confronting for some of the more traditional, um, larger commercial firms in, in Sydney who tend to dominate the architectural um, community there. Um, one of the reasons I came to live in Melbourne a long time ago was because of um, the Transition magazine and the idea of the Halftime Club and this idea that there's a debate discussion. about architecture and discussion. And there's quite a good collegiate sensibility in Melbourne where people support one another, um, they support younger architects, and they're not afraid of interesting new buildings. And they, they There's a lot of interesting buildings that have been done in Melbourne in the last 20 years, in my view. Yeah, and I, you know, Corrigan was probably a huge influence on that. The late Peter yeah. Corrigan, very yeah. sadly passed away recently. Yes. Um, now, Melbourne is quite a dynamic place for architecture, and it's not just, in my opinion, I mean, I've had, you know, you know, most people come to Melbourne, and it's something that's just such a surprise, it that is. it's not really um, expected. No, I mean, um, cities always tend to have their kind of idiosyncrasies, and I think Melbourne has this kind of... Um, interest in architecture that just goes outside the sort of um, the formal ideas that are popular at the time, that there are people who are trying to do new things constantly. So um, that, I think, is invigorating from young architects particularly. And RMIT in particular, I think, is one of the leaders in that area, that it has fostered a kind of sense of adventure and um, experimentation in architecture amongst its students here. And I've been lucky enough to be involved in some of that and there's some really, teaching programs yeah and they have a strong influence from profession with part-time teachers here mm. sessional teachers which i think is really important it's a bit like the gold and silversmithing yeah. course at rmit also that you know they engage um, all sorts of wonderful people and really have made melbourne a center for contemporary jewelry yeah i think rmit and i think if you see some of the other courses in particularly in victoria that have you know the new Monash course and the restructure of Melbourne Uni, and they've re and they've really tried to, I guess, orientate themselves to the idea that adventurous, being slightly adventurous and being more experimental is a good idea in architecture. As an architect, Peter, what gives you the greatest pleasure? Is it seeing someone walk out of a building and and with a smile, or saying something that you hadn't thought of? Yeah, when I you think, were designing the building? Oh, I think when people go to the building and they think, oh, this is fabulous, I'm really enjoying this. I think that's that's enough for me to satisfy. I mean, obviously I have an interest in other things in the architectural component of it and like to see buildings that are stimulate me more than they don't. But when you see people enjoying the buildings you've done, that's probably the greatest pleasure you can get out of it. Um well done to ARM on uh, this very prestigious award for the Geelong Library and all their other awards. And look, thanks so much, Peter, for coming in today and speaking with me. Thank uh, you for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure. Great. Uh, you've been with Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening.